Hello and welcome. My name is Amanda White. I'm editor of top1000funds.com and it's a pleasure to be hosting this conversation. I'm joined today by Noah Weisberger, who is Managing Director in the Institutional Advisory and Solutions Group at PGM, the global investment management business of Prudential Financial. Noah's been at the IAS Group since January 2020. He began his career as a staff economist at the Council of Economic Advisors and had 17 years on the sell side of the industry, including at Sanford Bernstein and Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research. At PGM IAS, he applies his macroeconomic and policy expertise to the group's research and client advisory work that focuses on asset allocation and portfolio construction. Welcome to you, Noah. How are things for you? Things are good. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure as always. Great. So this is the second time we've spoken this year. Um, You've done a series of three related pieces of research looking at stock bond correlations. The first two looked at the drivers of those correlations and what the outlook might be for correlations going forward, firstly in the US and then in global markets. And we spoke about those two pieces of research back in August. So let's just remind ourselves of the findings of those two pieces of research before we um, before we talk about the latest piece. So can, can you just give, give us a sort of broad reminder of the findings of those two pieces of research as we go into uh, this next piece? Absolutely. It's, it's like the Lord of the Rings almost, uh, the trilogy. So <laughs> the, the first uh, two chapters, I guess you can call it, the first two papers, we looked first at the drivers of stock bond correlation regimes in the U.S., and then the relationship of the U.S. to the rest of the developed world. And there are two stylized facts that, that one needs to explain when, when thinking about stock bond correlation. The first is that uh, in the U.S. and really in developed markets generally, stock bond correlation regimes are really long-lasting. So we've been in a 20-year period of negative correlation. Um, and prior to that was, let's call it a 30-year almost period from uh, the late 60s all the way to 2000 of positive stock bond correlation. That's for the U.S. It's similar across developed markets. So when looking for candidate explanations, they need to be able to explain long, fairly stable regimes. Regimes change, but they tend to be long and fairly stable. So it can't be business cycle or market cycle type phenomena to explain stock bond correlation regimes. And then the second is that uh, regimes are incredibly similar across developed markets. It doesn't seem like any specific market leads or lags. But stock bond correlations across the developed markets seem to all move together. And so the candidate explanations we proposed ended up being focused on um, monetary policy measures, fiscal policy measures, uh, a little bit about risk preference, people's preferences for stocks versus bonds or their preference for risk more generally. And then we also thought a little bit about the global versions of those factors versus uh, local versions. And in short, what we find is that periods with Uh, concerns about fiscal policy sustainability, periods where there are concerns about monetary policy independence, periods where monetary policy seems to be driving the cycle as opposed to responding to the business cycle, um, and periods where risk is being re-rated in tandem across asset classes, those tend to be positive stock bond correlation regimes. And I would say about two-thirds of any developed market's stock bond correlation regime is really explained by what's going on in the U.S., and a third is explained locally. So what we tried to do in those first two papers is sketch out the policy drivers that could lead to positive or negative stock bond correlation and look at how common they are across countries. And that's sort of what we found. Fiscal policy, sustainability, monetary policy, independence, and are a lot of the U.S. driving the rest of the world. So can you expand a little bit on that on those factors 
and those, you know, really important determinations of, of driving stock bond correlations in the context of, uh, you know, the most recent activities by central banks in particular and, and what the context is for 2022? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. You know, we, we started this research agenda when I joined uh, PGM in, in, in 2020 and our first paper, I think, came out in 2021. So predating, you know, the research started before COVID, but certainly predating this latest bout of inflation, right? The cyclical worries in COVID were not about inflation initially. They were very much about weak demand um, and monetary policy responding to that weak demand. And so um, amazingly, it feels like a lot of the concerns that people have that they articulate when we speak with our clients, kind of almost like the cocktail hour chit chat beforehand. It's all about where is the Fed? Is the Fed behind the curve, ahead of the curve? Are they hawkish? Are they dovish? You know, what? there are no more bullets in fiscal policy. Maybe the U.S. overstimulated with the second round of fiscal stimulus. Um, all those kind of cocktail conversations end up really having very profound implications for something fundamental to the portfolio construction process, namely stock bond correlation. And so it's kind of amazing to see the list of things one could worry about. And I'll throw another one out there in the list. You know, we talked about policy, but also the drivers of the economy in, in, in a period where supply concerns are driving prices higher and output lower, that tends to uh, be a positive correlation world for stocks and bonds versus a period of time where demand drives the business cycle when, when uh, uh, prices and output are kind of moving in the same direction. And so a lot of the worries that seem to have been kind of, I don't want to say esoteric, but were almost theory in 2020 really have come to the fore as we go through um, you know, this post-COVID inflationary period. And people are worried, you know, the, the monetary policy concerns, the fiscal policy concerns immediately bring people back to the 70s. To me, it's less about the level of inflation or the level of interest rates. It's more about uncertainty about policy rates, uh, the co-movement of policy rates and economic growth, and the re-rating of risks. And all of those speak to correlation. You know, inflation per se, interest rates per se, that may impact returns, but our concern is more about correlation. And there, it's the things I mentioned before. It's uncertainty about the policy rate because of fiscal sustainability concerns, because we don't know quite what rule the Fed or central bankers are following, and so on. And so a lot of these concerns that have come to the fore in 2022 uh, aren't just about the economy. They end up being about a fundamental building block of portfolio construction. So let's dive into that a little bit. And, and that's sort of what we're here to talk about today, which is this third piece of research uh, that you released last month, which really looks at the so what, if you like. Um, so given you've examined the drivers of stock bond correlations and the fact there is currently a positive correlation, you now examine what that means for portfolios and what the implications might be. So let's dive into this. Can you lay out for us uh, first of all, how a portfolio behaves when stocks and bonds are correlated. Absolutely. And so, you know, I think that that's the exact reason why we came to this third chapter, which is, you know, let's assume we understand that there are these long regimes. Let's under, assume we understand kind of the macro drivers behind these regimes. Practically speaking, what does that mean? And the first thing I'll just say in terms of laying out the, the conversation, um, we tried to isolate this correlation from other other. Uh, things that are moving in the, in the market world. So we're going to hold expected returns constant and volatility constant and focus only on what a change in correlation from negative to positive might mean for portfolio allocation. And so the first kind of most obvious thing, and I think this is this is clear to most market participants, is that you know, when correlation goes from negative to positive, the portfolio becomes more volatile. And there's really no escaping that fundamental fact. And that really has profound implications 
for the performance of a balanced portfolio. Uh, portfolio managers or CIOs should expect their balanced portfolio to have higher per period volatility. They should expect their portfolio to have a wider range of, uh, of risk-adjusted returns, uh, at, even over long periods of time, you know, a wider dispersion of terminal wealth outcomes, deeper drawdowns, greater probability of ending a, a given period of time, even a 10-year period of time, um, in the negative. And so that's just the world in which people have to operate. You know, it, I know we don't have a screen in front of us, but if you can imagine for a second, the efficient frontier of all possible stock bond portfolios, that efficient frontier essentially just shrinks inward. And that means there's some combinations of risk and reward that just are no longer attainable um, in any way that you combine a portfolio of stocks and bonds uh, for, for a PM, for, for an asset allocator, for a CIO. And that's really the basic and most important message we want to tell people is, look, we are in a period of time where there's just going to be uh, more volatility. It's not because stocks are more volatile. It's not because bonds are more volatile. It's because combined, they no longer have that natural hedge. And that leads to different per portfolio performance on a forward basis. Yeah, so, so let's have a look at the specific environment at the moment. And given there's more volatility, um, and as you say, it's not because stocks are more volatile, but because of the correlations and the shrinking efficient frontier or, or, or potential outcomes increasing and being more volatile. So what, what's your recommendation on how investors should act given all of that? Should they be waiting to see how the correlations pan out in 2023 or should they be doing something now to, to kind of predict that and, and, and act for that and, and sort of, you know, try and be more resilient in their portfolios? Right. So, so I'll break that apart into two bits. One is kind of uh, relative to 2022, how I think we should put 2022 in context. And then, you know, imagine we didn't just experience 2022. What would I what would I be saying? Uh, so in terms of 2022, it's, it's a it's a tricky message to give to clients and to you know myself as well. Living through 2022, I don't think that's the paradigm we should have in mind. When we think about the potential for the next 10 years or 15 years of positive stock bond correlation. Right. 2022 was obviously very damaging because of the wholesale re-rating in both stocks and bonds. I would argue probably because the risk-free asset bonds have to be re-rated and so there's really no place to hide from a portfolio construction perspective. That said, the decline, the simultaneous large in tandem lockstep decline in both stocks and bonds across the developed market complex, that's kind of highly unusual. And I wouldn't expect 2022 to be the paradigm going forward. 2022, the performance of a balanced portfolio was less about the shift in correlation from negative to positive. It was much more about really bad realized returns. And so unless you're going to think over the next 10 years to expect persistently negative returns from both asset classes, I don't think the lessons of 2022 are particularly relevant. That doesn't make the pain of 2022 any less painful, if you will, but it just makes it the wrong paradigm to have, have in mind. And even in terms of correlation, the degree of correlation between stocks and bonds in 2022 was quite high and negative. That's also not typical. We're, usually when we think about a positive stock bond correlation regime, it's not perfectly correlated to correlation of one. It's like a correlation of 0.25. So there's plenty of room, even within that positive co-movement, for the two assets to be diversifiers. And that kind of gets me more to the beyond 2022, what we think the right lessons are for, for asset allocators, for CIOs, for portfolio managers. And here it's a lot less dramatic. On the one hand, performance is going to be impacted. But on the other hand, within the narrow context of a balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds, 
there's not a whole lot you can do to mitigate that performance deficit. In other words, you're sort of stuck with the facts on the ground, the realization of how capital markets are going to behave. And the really the, the answer of what to do in an optimal sense is actually kind of tricky. Uh, when we do the analysis and we look at kind of mean variance optimization, meaning people are trading off risk and reward and thinking about how to build their portfolio, um, the optimal answer when correlation is positive is not that much different from the optimal answer when correlation is negative. And in fact, depending on how much an investor likes risk, if you will, how risk averse they are, the quote unquote right answer could be either in a world where correlation is positive, you want to reduce risk exposure because the portfolio has gotten more volatile. And so you pull back a little bit in stocks. We're talking about going from an allocation in the mid 40s to the low 40s, from the high 40s to the mid 40s. Alternatively, if you're a little bit more risk seeking, risk loving, a little bit restless, less risk averse, the optimal answer actually is to lean further into stocks. Your portfolio is slightly more volatile. Bonds are slightly less valuable as a hedge. The way to pay yourself for that incremental risk is actually to increase your expected return by owning more stocks. And so if you start off as a 60-40 investor, maybe you increase to 63 or 65% stocks. So it's not a very intuitive answer. I think that was a bit of a surprising finding for me, but the math works, the intuition works. The broad answer is the right thing might be not to do much at all in terms of changing the optimal mix in portfolio, but certainly there's not an obvious answer. You either cut risk or increase risk. It's kind of a fine balance, and it depends a little bit where you are in the risk spectrum. So I hate always having a, a not concrete answer, I think the concrete part of the answer is there's not much you can do to mitigate the damage from positive correlation. That's both a good message and a bad message. The good message is your optimal allocation before is going to be close to your op optimal allocation now that correlation has switched. So we'll come to some kind of behavioral aspects of that in a moment, but I just want to talk a little bit about the 60-40 portfolio. And, you know, there's been lots of asset owners around the world sort of, you know, really struggling with that given the market conditions and all of the risks and, um, you know, factors that they have to face at the moment and the very difficult market conditions has led to a lot of people talking about the death of the 60-40 portfolio. Given all of the research you've done, what's your view of this? Right. So I think this is the time to, to, to be as sort of even-handed and measured as possible particularly because 2022 was so damaging. And it was damaging in all quarters, and there really wasn't any place to hide. But again, we need to look forward, not backward. And on a forward basis, unless one believes that we're going to see a repeat in terms of expected return, deeply negative expected returns over the next three years, five years, or something like that, it, short of those you know, Herculean assumptions, my view, my strongly held view, is that the benefits of diversification withstand positive correlation, right? As long as assets aren't incredibly highly correlated, a portfolio with multiple assets that are moderately correlated still is the right place to go for a risk-averse investor. And so I don't think the 60-40 portfolio is dead. I think it got beaten up to a pulp in 2022, but that's likely not the expectation on a forward-going basis. And the other thing I would say is, the death of the 60-40 portfolio has nothing to do with positive correlation. In a positive correlation world, a 60-40 mix of stocks and bonds may well be optimal and may well outperform other, other possible weightings. It's not the positive correlation that did, did investors in in 2022 with the sharp negative returns in both asset classes. So we feel really strongly that um, 
despite the pain, you don't want to learn the wrong lessons in 2022. I mean, that's something that uh, it's it's a tricky message to deliver. You don't want to be insensitive to the fact that it's an incredibly difficult market environment. But at the same time, it's sort of the job, which is to be kind of impartial and bloodless and say, look, on a forward basis, 60-40 or, or whatever the right mix is, um, is probably close to the right mix still. Uh, the portfolio will be a little bit more volatile, like I was saying at the outset, and you'll have deeper drawdowns, but there's no way to engineer around that. And so the best thing to do in that situation is to remain diversified. So you mentioned a couple of times that 2022 is not the normal going forward. Um, what are your assumptions then for 2023? You know, many people are talking about a recession in the US and what impact that might have on markets. Are you saying that you're not expecting both stocks and bonds to to have challenging performance issues? So I, I don't think we have, you know, so we don't have a forecast for 2023. And I don't think, I think the environment remains challenging. Uh, I don't want to suggest that it doesn't, but I think the degree of challenge in 2022 is really unique in history. I'll, I'll give a couple of, of thoughts there. The first is that, you know, in the positive previous positive correlation regime, there were several recessions. And even so, the 60-40 portfolio or a balanced portfolio was able to do what it should do, uh, which is to provide uh, some cushion one against the other. You know, not negative correlation, but not perfectly positive correlation either. So I think the the intuition behind a balanced portfolio is robust, even if there is a recession ahead and even if markets continue to face challenges. I don't think they'll face challenges the way they did in 2022, only because part of that shock starts to wear off. Right? We've, we've now seen these markets re-rate. We've now sort of adjusted to um, a Fed that may be you know, behind the curve and may, may take a full monetary policy cycle, you know, hiking and easing before we escape the positive correlation. But again, I don't think that means that the, 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 the 60-40 is, is, uh, is dead. It may mean you, know, you have to write down some challenging near-term expectations for returns. But again, I don't think that's the, the long-term answer. The other piece of history that I think is important to keep in mind, and again, 2022, the exception, if you do look back at that long 1970, let's call it 1970 to 2000 period, when correlation was positive, there were these episodes of deep equity market declines where even in a positive correlation regime, you saw bond outperformance in those episodes. And specifically, it was October 87. It was the LTC on Russia crisis in 1998, where even in a positive correlation world, when needed most, the, the flight to quality still helped to boost bonds when equities were most damaged. That was not the paradigm in 2022 perhaps in part because 2022 in part was about the re-rating of bonds themselves. But once that re-rating happens, I think you can have a positive correlation world. Uh, you can have whatever assumptions you want to make about expected returns. And you can have some degree of confidence in the most extreme situations. It wouldn't be unusual to see the flight to quality reassert itself. So I tapped dance a little bit about what our, our, our return expectations are for 2023. And suffice it to say, there's a lot of expectations that you could write down where, where, where a balanced portfolio would remain the right answer. So let's lean into the demands and communication around this for investors. Um, you know, we're, we're agreeing that this is a very difficult time for investors and now your research is saying, yes, there'll be positive correlations between stocks and bonds, volatility is going to be higher, uh, and yet, you know, perhaps the best thing to do is nothing or increase risky assets. How do they communicate with their boards, investment committees, other stakeholders um, about what we've talked about today? Right. I mean, I think this is, just, it's a huge challenge. And I think I think you use the word behavioral, it's a behavioral challenge. Because I think people, 
and and you know the person without sin you know should cast the first stone in this regard we always look backward right we're, we're data analysts we're data scientists we're quantitative we're empirical the only thing we have to go on is history and the most recent history was that markets are can be incredibly damaging and there's no place to hide but that's probably not the right expectation on a three five or ten year forward basis and i think that's exactly the message to deliver to a stakeholder or to some an overseer which is look this is exactly when it's important to be the most quantitative and to be the most analytical and to think most carefully about the way to construct a portfolio. Right? It was easy to construct a portfolio, I say easy in quotation marks, but building a balanced portfolio when correlation was negative, you get kind of a free lunch almost. The era of the free lunch may well be over. Uh, given some of those forces we talked about at the very beginning, I would not be surprised if positive correlation was here to stay. Parenthetically, I would be surprised if the 2022 market direction paradigm is here to stay and parenthetical. Um, and if that's the case, I think it's important to remind the board, the overseers, the stakeholders, that this is when it's really important to stick to the knitting of the discipline of finance, which is to kind of be dispassionate and try to think, think issues through. You know, I think one thing that we haven't mentioned too much, and we have a little bit of color on this in, in some of the papers, is that in a positive correlation world, that's probably when the value of another asset class in the mix is a little bit higher. So the role for like a commodity asset or something like that is probably a little bit bigger when correlation is positive between stocks and bonds, and there's room for that extra asset class to come in. But again, those are risky assets. And what you're doing is you're saying, I'm going to have some belief on a forward basis that markets will return to some, some semblance of normalcy in terms of the expected returns they can deliver. And if that's the case, you may want to lean a little bit into risk assets because you are facing more volatility and you need to compensate yourself uh, in a return framework. That is a counterintuitive answer, but it in some ways is the right answer. Uh, you, the time to make the big adjustments is not after 2022 happens. And if the debate is about how persistent is the correlation paradigm that we saw emerge in 2022, then I think the answer is stick to the knitting of diversification, a broad blend of assets, and stocks and bonds being the cornerstone of the portfolio. I mean, obviously you can't predict the future, Noah, but what, what does history tell us about the persistence of that positive correlation? Right, so so history. I think there are two, a couple important. I would add. I'll, I'll sort of refer back to the previous question as well about how to communicate. History tells us that these regimes can be quite persistent. Um, you know, is it going to be thirty years like it was last time? My gut is that it's not because we don't have the same like monetary revolution that we need to do like we, that we did have to, that that we had to do like in, in the seventies and eighties. We're not quite that offsides in terms of monetary policy. We may be more offsides in terms of the sustainability of fiscal policy. So I think we do need to open our minds to the possibility that we will have this correlation correlation regime uh, persist for some time. And I think that's a world where, uh, again, the benefits of diversification don't go away, but I think that may well be the world that, that we find ourselves in for quite some time. So we'll put a link to, to the paper in the story that we write alongside this podcast, but is there anything else in particular in the paper or that came out of the research that you want investors to to really understand, Noah? And I, I think I think if I just sum it up, it's it's kind of it's kind of three steps. It's this may well be a persistent regime and it's a world that we're not used to. Uh, portfolio performance will be worse. And I think you know, going back to your the, the way you framed it, which is how would you communicate or what's important to communicate, I think it's a very important discussion to have with asset owners, with investors, with the individuals. With the risk manager, you know, we we can't expect to see the same sort of class of performance that we saw previously. That said, this is not the time for the hair to be on fire and to run around and to abandon discipline. 
Um, and I think those are two messages that are a little bit subtle. On the one hand, things are changing and things are changing in a worse way. Volatility will be up, risk reward will be worse, et cetera, et cetera. But that doesn't mean to, to, to abandon the discipline. And interestingly enough, on a um, it, on, a, on a, a relative return basis, right, relative to where bonds are, the 60-40 portfolio did quite well in the uh, in the 1970-2000 period, and actually did a little bit worse in the in the 2000-2020 period. So, you know, the simple intuition always isn't right in terms of the historical facts. And so, uh, I don't think this is the time to abandon hope in markets. I do think it's a time to adjust our expectations and to communicate that as, as robustly as possible. So finally, Noah, the reason you embark on this research agenda is to look at the assumptions that investors make and challenge those in terms of how they might change. So what have you got next on the research agenda in terms of challenging investor assumptions and helping investors make better decisions? Uh, That's a great question. So I think there are a couple streams to look at. One is, I hinted to it a little bit, and it's a, a little bit of the paper to what happens when you add other assets to this balanced portfolio and what you need to assume to make them worthwhile to include. I think that's one stream. And I think a, a broader picture is to try to trace out beyond just stock bond correlation, uh, what do the contours of this new world look like? You know, what, what opportunities are there and what risks are there that we haven't seen for 20 years and maybe we didn't see in the 30 years previously, right? In, in terms of, we've got a, a very different mix in, on, on institutional investors' portfolios already, uh, liquidity spillovers from one asset class to another. I mean, our group generally has focused a lot on illiquid uh, assets and private assets. That just didn't exist uh, the last time we had this more volatile world. And so uh, I think there's some really interesting questions pertaining to kind of assets beyond just the private sector, uh, the public assets, and how you would build a portfolio that would be robust to some features that we haven't seen for a while. So I think those are all really interesting questions. And as always, you know, history is a guide, but it's really no... Uh, no, no complete guide. And I think that's why research is fun, right? I, I once had a mentor who said to me, you know, if we knew the answers, it wouldn't be research. So I don't know what the answers will be, but I do know it'll be an interesting process to try to think through some of these really important issues. Well, no, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. I hope I get to do it again very soon. Thank you so much for your time and your continued research agenda. Really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to chat and it's always fun to, fun to do these uh, with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Noah.